Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I like to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them. What you doing down here? You're showing me, man. It's the Irish Times second captain's football podcast. I'm David here with Ken Early. Hi, Ken. Hey, how are you? I'm pretty good. Lionel Messi continued his assault on various all-time scoring records at the weekend with his 32nd hat-trick at Barcelona. But nestled within this achievement was another example of the only glitch in Messi's game. It's a weakness that is almost inexplicable. He missed another penalty. This time he was allowed to retake it. But I'm, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by Messi's inability to knock the ball in from 12 yards. His miss against Man City in the Champions League meant at that stage he'd missed five of his last 10 penalties. Mm. for Barca and Argentina. I'm going to count this one at the weekend as another miss, Ken, <laughs> even though he was allowed to retake it. So yeah, I'd say, I'd say that one probably doesn't go into the no, records as an official miss, although everybody knows that it should count as a miss. I was just looking up a bit of info on this uh, before we came on here, and there are quite a few videos. At the, well, there was one in 2013 and then another one in 2014. I haven't seen a more recent one, but uh, they seem to get updated on an annual basis. Leo Messi's pen- all of Leo Messi's penalty misses. Mm-hmm. I think after I finish up recording here, I might have a little look just to see if there's any one particular technical issue that he's getting wrong there. I do have a theory on it, Ken. Yeah. Messi taking a penalty, even though he's an amazing striker of the ball, so he should still be able to score them, he, he loses his biggest advantage which in is? the box, which is his balance. Specifically... The way he uses he's, his balance. He's better balanced than everybody else in the box. Oh, absolutely. Time. Probably any other player that's ever played the game. And he's definitely got better balance than the goalkeeper. And he uses that to throw the goalkeeper off. The amount of finishes, in fact, even one of his other finishes against Vallecano, was he did exactly that. He threw the goalkeeper one way, which makes the actual art of finishing. He literally the, rolls it he into just roll, He rolls so many goals into the net. empty net. He loses that. Now, I'm, I'm offering up excuses here. I still think it's insane because you would think that he's such a good striker he could just smack them in regardless of balance but that's my that's my attempt at a theory anyway that's not a bad it's not a bad theory actually Um, I mean there is one other glitch in his game Uh, well he's not the greatest he's not going to win too many aerial duels that's exactly it (laughs) (laughs) he is bog average at heading the ball Uh, but 
in terms of his uh, his penalty, his penalty, um, not many players managed to amass a record of missing five out of the last ten penalties because most players get taken off penalties long before <laughs> they get the opportunity to miss as many as five out of ten. But uh, Lionel Messi obviously uh, is playing by slightly different rules. His long-term record on penalties is 77%, uh, just over 77% conversion, which is bang average. Literally, it's it's... Exactly the like global average for penalty penalties. So you couldn't say he's he's below average. It's just that he's so far above average at everything else. Yeah. I mean, the there was a, a an interesting piece about him on five thirty eight, uh, which came out during the World Cup, which went through, which kind of used a, a a whole bunch of statistical measures to drive home just how unbelievably good Messi actually is. When you compare him to everybody else, it's it's as though he is a He's a kind of playing a different game from everybody else. So again and again, you have these kind of graphs where, you know, you've got this whole bunch of little dots on the graphs and then way out in the top right-hand corner, there's a little messy dot because he's just doing more of the thing and scoring more of the thing that he's doing more of than everybody else. Um, I mean, one simple example of it was uh, uh, comparing all players to both Messi and Ronaldo. Right. Um, shots taken inside the six-yard box. What do you think is the average uh, percentage of those shots that end up in the net for all players? Shots taken inside the inside the six-yard box. Forty-five percent. Only thirty-eight percent, actually. With Messi, it's forty-eight percent. So that's he's you know almost Decent guess. Yeah, not bad. He's but he's you know he's more than 25% better than everyone else at that. Inside the penalty area for all players, 13%. Oh, no, let me keep guessing these. It's oh, sorry. Well, if it's 13% for all players, what's Lionel Messi for inside the penalty area? That's penalty area, not six-yard box. 20%. 22%, Owen. That's good. Almost a quarter. That's a, that is actually amazing. What about outside the box shots for all players? Oh, Three percent. Bloody good guess, on three point one percent. What about Lionel Messi for that? Uh, for that matter, I'm going to. Say I'll, I'll bring in. I'll confuse it by bringing in Ronaldo at this point. What's Ronaldo's outside the box uh, scoring percentage? Five point two. Four point one. So he's you know a third better than your average Joe. Uh, Lionel Messi. Five. Twelve point one percent. If, well, Le- if Lionel Messi is shooting from outside the box, he's pretty sure he's going to score. And he's got he scores almost as often from outside the box as a normal player does from inside. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, I, I mean, a ridiculous sort of element, a ridiculous level of superiority. So you would think that with you know what is technically a pretty simple task, uh, Messi should be good at this. But I'm just not sure if Lionel Messi is necessarily. I mean, who's the greatest penalty taker in history? Matt Letizia. Johnny Wilkinson. Right? Different type of penalty. Nevertheless, I would say he's the best ever penalty taker. Well, uh, oh, I've totally forgotten the Welsh out half from... Neil Jenkins? Neil Jenkins. Uh, Neil Jenkins. I was, was going to jump in there, Ken, saying Neil Jenkins would have something to say about that. Unfortunately, I forgot poor old Neil's name. Well, Johnny Wilkinson, I would say, you know, top... Top penalty. I mean, so good at taking penalties that it didn't he more or less rip the muscles off his bones, the groin muscles off his bones as he practiced them so much, right? And apparently, Simon Hick told me that Johnny Wilkinson still practices penalties. He's retired. I know. But he still goes out there and kicks goals for a couple of hours at a time because it helps him clear his mind. 
I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> serious. Amazing. This is true. So he's still doing that. Now, taking a penalty is a mechanical kind of a thing. And the more you practice it, definitely the better you're going to get. Is Lionel Messi there after Barcelona training taking 300 penalties like Johnny Wilkinson? Or is it 50 penalties and if he misses one, he has to start all over again and score 50 in a row because he can't go home until that's happened? No. If he did that... I think he'd score more than 77%. So he's not practicing hard, hard enough. That's your simple explanation. I don't know if the marginal gains from practicing more in this instance would be worth... It would make him better at penalties, but not necessarily uh, more durable as exactly. an athlete. Exactly. It, might, it, might, it may not be worth chasing that additional marginal gain in this particular area. Uh, at the possible expense of kicking your, your leg off, your own leg off. We'll, we'll talk more about this later on. Uh, we're also going to chat about a doping story again. It's ripped German football apart. Okay, the doping took place in the 1980s. And but 70s. Uh, 70s and 80s, but uh, it's an interesting one. A new, a new study has come out. Um, yeah, and the, the two clubs that have been uh, named in this study are Freiburg, which is... Um, uh, actually, the, the same club as the, the 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 doping report has come out of the city of Freiburg, so the the little uh, hometown club has been ha, has been implicated, and Stuttgart. Both of these, um, by coincidence, happen to be former clubs where the current German national team manager Joachim Löw uh, played his football, um, and, and they read, they reckon that it's not just a case of. Um, that this is a, they were actually doing anabolic uh, steroids. I mean, in the, along the lines of what uh, famously happened in the Olympic Games, as opposed to what generally seems to be associated with football in these reports is you know, amphetamines, yeah, yeah that kind of stimulants, um, weight loss stuff, or, or stimulants for the field. Whereas this is you know, kind of muscle building. I mean, I, I hesitate to say proper doping because it's all doping, but you know, Ben Johnson type doping as opposed to. Diego Maradona type doping. Yeah. If you know what I mean. We'll get to that a little bit later. It's on Africa Nerdies. Report on sport. So where are we? Um, well, disgraceful scenes, Owen. In the uh, FA Cup. As Aston Villa supporters brought shame upon... Uh, shame upon the, the great competition. Amazing, though, wasn't it? It was great to, uh, it was great to look at. What? Great to just... look at? These mindless idiots. That's what Tony Pulis called them. <laughs> well, he was he was right. Uh, it was just so striking. It, it's been so long since we saw anything like this in English football. Yeah. I was, you know, I sh- obviously I shouldn't say this. Uh, and subsequently, it seems like maybe, it turns out that when people are high in emotion and God knows what else and storm onto a field, it's not necessarily the safest thing for a lot of the players involved there. So it, de- it definitely shouldn't be done. But I've got to say, my v- initial visceral reaction when I saw this, I didn't see it live, when I saw it later on was, oh my God. Yeah. This is incredible. It's hard right. not to get excited. There's a voyeuristic element where you just see the, these... Pro- and it was also... I, I wasn't totally shocked by it in the sense that I'd watched the end of the first Villa-West Brom game and it, it was mania in the stadium that day when they got a late winner. You remember, was it a, wasn't it a penalty? Yeah, it was a penalty they scored penalty. late to win that one there. And I'd never... I hadn't seen Villa Park. There was, there was more excitement contained in one moment at Villa Park than they've had in about 10 years. So in a way, it's not that shocking, but still actually seeing a scene like that is it, it takes you back in. It does, um, and not in a good way if you're Tony Pulis. It's disgraceful, he raged. But, I mean, Pulis has just been knocked out of the cup, you know. He doesn't like that. Uh, he says, we don't want to see those scenes. They've beaten us, and for that to happen, it's just mindless idiots. If you're Villa, 
you need to look at the stewards as they came over to our fans and there was nobody over there. It's a quarterfinal of an FA Cup. It's a full house and you know that it's going to be tasty. Let's put it that way. So um, Villa unprepared uh, for what happened. But Villa, you know, it, it's there was something kind of spontaneous about it. I mean, it, the problem is that it does happen kind of hot on the heels of a, of a, you know, as you were saying, mania last week. Um, and it does appear as though they weren't really ready for fans invading the pitch. But it's been a long time since something like that happened at Villa. I mean, the last time I think I can remember something like that happening at Villa was when Ruud van Nistelrooy scored all those goals. Do you remember Do you remember the game? Oh, in the FA Cup as well. Was it, was it, it a cup tie? I mean, Villa were 2-0 up and then van Nistelrooy just started it might have been a cup scoring match, a load of goals. And I'm pretty sure some of the Man United fans were on the field um, as a result of that. But, you know, in terms of um, the home supporters... Uh, something to actually get onto the fi- get onto the field. You're so happy that you can't contain your emotions that you run onto the field. Because, you know, I think at a basic level, that is actually what this is. You know what I mean? It's obviously, it has uh, all kinds of sinister connotations in English football because of the sort of history of it. And oftentimes these were, you know, organized sort of mobs of violent uh, fans who are getting on there with the intention of fighting people, you know. I don't really think that was the case. At, Although Fabian Delph was bitten. Well, well, yeah, I mean, he was bitten, but, you know, it's it's like as Delph says himself, it was dangerous, someone tried to take my boot off, people tried to kiss me and were biting me. It was scary. I mean, were, were they, you know... I'm not sure where they... Where does the, the where do you draw the line? <laughs> where does the kiss end and the biting and biting? Uh, so it's it's hard to know because it, it did seem to be Villa supporters mainly doing it. I mean, again, maybe you'd be guilty of if somebody was to go out there with the intention of biting a football player, it would be a mistake maybe to look at it and say, well, it's sort of irrational, isn't it, for a Villa fan to bite a Villa player? Why not bite one of the West Brom players <laughs> if you if you wanted to bite someone? But maybe that would be looking at it too rationally, or maybe it was just a kiss that got got out of control. You know. I don't know. That Villa game, Man United match from 2002 was in the FA Cup. It was a third round replay. Ruben Isroy scored those goals in the comeback. But what do... I know the FA have asked for explanations from both sets of fans as West Brom apparently were throwing stuff down onto the pitch. But technically, shouldn't Villa ban every single one of those supporters? Mm. This is the th- this is why it doesn't happen much anymore because the, the punishments are so strong. Uh, as far as I'm aware, the rule there is, aside from the fact that they, they could potentially criminally prosecute people, I guess, if they really went to town on their own supporters, but at the very least, they are supposed to ban these guys for life, which means Villa's already, at times, patchy record of home attendance. It's going to be hit pretty hard, because it looked to yeah. me like there were quite a few supporters on the I field. think Villa are going to have to find a different solution <laughs> uh, this time from, from banning all those all those people. You know, I think maybe stewards, maybe Tony Pulis' suggestion is going with stewards, more stewards. Uh, that might uh, that might be an approach they could take, but uh, obviously this, you know, in the absence of huge amount of other talking points, those as I am to use the phrase talking. I mean, it sounds as though this stuff, this you know, media coverage of football is largely manufactured, artificial um, sort of debates, which nobody really would have in real world unless they had to uh, fill pages in a newspaper. But there is a, a piece by Martin Samuel in the Daily Mail, uh, which kind of takes this as the jumping-off point for a, a kind of a, a sort of a what's-going-on type piece about 
Wire England playing Ireland on June the 7th at the Aviva Stadium in Dublin. He uses the Aston Villa pitch invasion to question why this matches well, the Ireland game. Certainly, the certainly the, the, the picture, uh, the, um, the Daily Mail website uses a picture of, of the pitch invasion in this, in this article. Um, but he's saying, yeah, he says, look, you know, when Villa played West Brom, when Villa were joining us West Brom, I'm sure the organisers were like, oh, really? Uh, similarly, when Serbia were drawn against Albania, remember the match that was called off because the drone, the drone was flying the offensive um, Albanian flag around it, flying it around the stadium. Yeah, and uh, you know, again, people were like, oh no, really? At the same time, who can legislate for the vicissitudes of an open draw? That's just what the draw says, and you got to fulfil the fixture. Whereas, whoever made the decision for England to play Ireland in a friendly in June 7th in Dublin is a numpty. Really? Yeah, and he, he makes the point um, he says, after intense negotiations with police, the kickoff time has now been brought forward to 1pm. Brought forward isn't strictly the case because I don't think they had agreed a kickoff time. I mean, you can't bring forward a kickoff time that doesn't actually exist. Um, why is it being played at all? There are 209 member associations of FIFA, which means there are 207 countries that England could play without fear of significant disturbance, and one where England's last visit was abandoned due to a riot. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, but the implication there seems to be that there's something about playing in Dublin. and There's not an implication it, it, that if you play in Dublin, play in Ireland, there's the possibility of trouble. But even 20 years ago, and we would hope we're 20 years further on in Anglo-Irish relations. The Queen has visited since again. A lot of positive things have happened there. Even 20 years ago, the Irish fans weren't causing any issues. So, mm. un- unless he's unless he thinks that the... And maybe the, uh, the anti-IRA chants that were struck up for some bizarre reason by England supporters in Scotland a while back uh, indicates that he might have a point that it might bring out the worst in the English supporters travelling over. But it's... I don't know. You're, if, if you don't play this friendly... What happens when we do end up having to play England again, which exactly. will invariably happen in, in a qualifier in a major tournament? You've then created a, a situation where you, you're actually saying this this is too hot to handle, but we're going to have to do it anyway. So I, I just I don't see. I, I think play the friendly and take it from there if there's a, if there's a problem. Does anyone really think this friendly is going to be too no. hot to handle? I mean, I was at the last friendly, the 2013 Ireland England England Ireland friendly at Wembley, and it was a lukewarm affair. I mean, uh, the Ireland fans, I think, were pleased to have see Ireland equalise. Or did they? No, they equalised. Lampard, Lampard equalised. Shane Long scored a nice goal. Square better, yeah. Um, it didn't really have the feeling of one of those, wow, I'm going to remember. In fact, I can barely remember anything about the game now. <laughs> it's, what, a year and a half later? Um, so, no, I, I mean, the, the, there is another implication there, which is that England could go to any of the other 208 uh, member associations without causing any problems. And I'm not 100% sure on that either, actually. I'm not sure that Dublin is necessarily going to be the most hostile of all the possible 208 member, uh, 209 member sites of uh, associations of FIFA, or the 208 ones where England could play away from home. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really... I can't, I can't imagine... I mean, obviously... the. You know, this issue sort of is a becomes a talking point. Oh, credible. Maybe maybe there'll be credible at the England game. You know, one would certainly hope not. Uh, although Martin Samuel says, if it ends in tears and tear gas again, those who came up with this incendiary fixture 
Shouldn't I look far for the blame? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not with Martin Samuel on this one, Ken. Mm. Uh, no, I don't. Fine, fine writer, sure. though, I'm sure he is. Ooh, tonight's game. Yes. This was uh, Manchester United against Arsenal. And a big game you would have thought for both managers, although both of them are quite uh, open about uh, this isn't really the priority. Van ha- Louis van Gaal more so. Um, putting Because, you know, they, they put to him some comments from Arsene Wenger. He says... Uh, I think he is right. I think Arsene Wenger is always saying the right things. Uh, this is that the fourth place is more important than the FA Cup. Um, yeah, we all understand the the argument for why that is. Uh, I mean, and the the biggest argument I think for a club, the argument used to be money, but I think the biggest argument now for a club like Manchester United is the fact that well, this is the top competition, so you've you've got to be in this. You really have to be in this competition. Um, uh, Arsene Wenger saying that he's yeah sure I've I've sacrificed the FA Cup in the past, you know blithely sort of admitting to this thing which once would have been take, taken as shameful because essentially it clashes with the Champions League. You know you, you always have fixtures, you know you've got a Champions League game coming up, you've got to decide with a player mm, do I use him in this, do I use him in that? And it's always the FA Cup who loses out. Um, but yeah, I think it is a big uh, I think it is a big match for both of the managers. Um, Van Hal because of this this general sort of bad. Uh, atmosphere that seems to be coming, you know, the, the building. I think around the, you know, like storm clouds waiting for a bit of a bit of thunder to happen to sort of clear the air. Which way is it going to go, though? You know, are are House team going to click into gear? Are they going to show that, you know, we we just needed a bit of time, or is this sort of stasis, this slow kind of rot, going to continue? And then these. Divisions which have been talking. I mean, Van Hal, the, the whole thing with Giggs was put to him, you know, last week, and he's like, "Oh, you know, it's ridiculous." Yes, we have a we have a terrible relationship. Oh yeah, we had talked about this on Thursday's podcast with Richie. Mm. It might have been that day or on Friday. It was put to Van Hal. Yeah, no, our conversation with, with Richie wasn't necessarily put to Van Hal. No, I don't think so. The idea that similar ideas. Yeah, why was why was Giggs celebrating with you, and why were you celebrating with Giggs, and him seeming to ignore you completely? Giggs, of course, explained. Well, I just realised it was a few minutes after the game, and not to get carried away. Uh, Somewhat fair enough. It was a strange moment, but one that is that you could explain away fairly easily. Mm. There are a lot of these moments that, in retrospect. If it does turn out that these two don't get on, that will clearly be seen as... And even the famous... Oh, no. I was going to bring Mick McCarthy and Roy Keane, and I'm going to stop myself. In. Yeah. I'm going to stop myself. Yeah, well, that was... I think that was a little bit worse than this. Of course, Louis Hal was there that day as well, wasn't he? He was, <laughs> the, he was the beaten man on that occasion. Um, but look, it's because, really, of the of the way in which... It's it's Paul Scholes. Paul Scholes is the is the man that Louis Van Hal can thank for this. He seems to be the channel. Well, whether or not he is, it's natural for everybody to look at him and go, "He's not licking this off the stones." You know what I mean? When he says all this stuff, that it's it's reason it's a reasonable sort of assumption for people to make that Ryan Giggs might have similar kind of views. Which is not to say that Ryan Giggs, if he was the manager, would be able to get the team playing any better. I mean, when Giggs was the manager, he, he talked about how I want this team to play with, you know, the Manchester United philosophy because it's my philosophy. I've been all my life at this club. Passion, tempo, imagination, bravery, uh, tackles, you know, get the, the stadium going. Which is, which is all fine to say, but his team didn't actually play that way. You know, he wanted them to play that way. I'm sure he was saying to them, okay, lads, passion, tempo, desire, bravery, risk, you know, tackles. Goals. 
Goals, Shots. win, three points, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's one thing to say that. It's another thing actually to to get your team to really do it. That's the difficult part. Everybody knows that passion, imagination, goals, uh, desire. Verve. Verve, buccaneering, uh, <laughs> wing play. All of that stuff is great, but it, actually getting the players to do it, to translate the abstract nouns into, you know, concrete action. Thanks, Ryan. What, what formation are we playing? That doesn't <laughs> yeah. matter. Goals. So when so when you say, well, the Louis van Gaal team clearly lacks uh, bravery, drive, passion, tempo. Uh, instead, it has caution, uh, uh, you know, more caution, pragmatism. <laughs> it's got uh, slow tempo, you know. It's got all of these things that, you know, oh, Giggs, Giggs must be tearing his hair out looking at this. You know, maybe he is. I mean, Skulls seem to be saying, look, this isn't, this isn't good enough. You know, we should, you know, it's not good enough to aim for fourth place and all this kind of stuff. But maybe that's where Manchester United actually are at the moment. You know, if you're going to be realistic about it, maybe they maybe securing that is the best they can really hope for. It's probably okay to aim for fourth place if you secure fourth place. Absolutely. Great if you finish fifth, though. Um, you know, so so I, I'm not I'm not suggesting that oh gigs, you know he must he, he 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 mustn't like what's happening here, and he'd probably be able to do. He'd be more in tune with the real philosophy of the club. I don't believe that for a second. I think I don't think I think if he was the manager, things would probably unravel pretty quickly. Whatever it was he wanted the team to do. However, the fact that there does seem to be this kind of, it's not it doesn't seem like a unified front. You know what I mean? It's it's there seem to be a couple of little. Um, couple of little uh, weaknesses there. Just uh, one other thing I should mention is um, that it was put to Wenger about the uh, spitting. Mm-hmm. And uh, this seems to go slightly overlooked, but it was he did say in his press conference, um, he said that it happened. I've been subject to it personally. He says, uh, at the time, nobody spoke about it. When I played in France, it happened before. We didn't see it on TV. When you see it on TV, of course, it makes it worse. Uh, were you outraged, Arsene? Yes, but I could control myself. Do you think it would be a deserved six-game ban for spitting? He said, I applied the sentence myself. So I think what Arsene Wenger is saying, that he was like totally raj. Like he uh, he went for the guy once. He he was spat on, sure, but he exacted his own form of justice. You could say, Owen, that his opponent was eating his supper through a straw <laughs> in, the matter of, in the matter of John Walters. That's so. the end of Kennedy's report on sport. Shane Curran with the kick out. The 42-year-old goalkeeper. Curran it out from goal. Here he comes. He tucked it. He fought it. He's 50 yards out from goal. What a game for us coming. All the mother niggas lame and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time a senior tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 be the last one. Bam. Leave a pretty girl's sad reputation Start a fight club, Brad reputation I asked the question Did anybody deserve to lose at the Lara Club final? Give me a text, te- te- if you know the answer It'll be heartbreak on either side Imagine being eight up Imagine coming eight down Jane Curran has been lifted by an umpire The sub goalie Two castle barmen And a British man I can't see Curran continuing It could be his last race out of goal Dermot Cargan is based in Madrid and joins us now, Dermot. I know you have been watching Carlo Ancelotti's press conference. Real Madrid are playing the Champions League this week, so we'll get to that in a moment. But we have been talking uh, about Leo Messi. Uh, he seems to be, he's got 41 goals, 16 assists now. Another 
hat-trick at the weekend, sixth hat-trick of the season for Messi. He's obviously in insane form. Is he as good now as he's ever been? Yeah, I think so. I think he's back pretty close to to really at, at his top top level. The, the the thing that changed was after the, the game at Anoeta in early January when they lost at Real Sociedad and, and Messi himself has come out since then and said that, you know, everybody in the dressing room, which pretty much means him, had to think about it and decided they had to, to, to settle down and start playing. He's in really great form. Yesterday, he didn't even seem that pushed. Like, he was strolling around for, for a lot of the game yesterday and then he scored a hat-trick in 12 minutes and the third goal was especially sweet. He took one touch to, to beat two players, then dummied the keeper and a second touch to put it in the net. It was a, a typical Messi goal when he's really on form and, and really everything is coming off for him. Barca look really well set. You know they're, they're top of the league now by a point. They've scored more goals than anybody. They've conceded less goals than anybody. And, and even in Madrid, people are thinking the momentum is really with them ahead of the Clasico in a couple of weeks' time. Dermot, we've been talking about his the one glitch in Leo Messi's game. Uh, that is that he's not an amazing penalty taker. One of the goals at the weekend was a retaken penalty. He missed the initial one. No, he's not. He's not bad, but he's uh, maybe a little bit above average in this aspect of the game. Where in other every other aspect, he's the best in the world or near enough the best in the world. Uh, why do you think he misses a few penalties? It is a weird one and it seems to be playing on his mind. Like the, the, the one that he missed yesterday before it was retaken saved by the, the Rio keeper was not a good penalty at all. He just kind of shoveled it, side-footed and the keeper made a save. And then the second one when he hit it, he seemed to hit it with real rage and he drilled it really low to the other side of the goal. It does play on his mind. You know, we all kind of speculate about what goes on in Messi's head and nobody really knows. Like I don't think Luis Enrique knows or his teammates know really what's going on. But he has a bit of a block on it. He's going to keep taking them. Luis Enrique said that there's no way that, that Messi's going to be taken off the penalties. But it, it is something that, you know, big players have missed penalties before. You know, you've had Ben Littleton, I think, on the show before talking about penalties with his book. And he goes into how the bigger players are, are not so good at penalties, especially in shootouts. And maybe it is just something that it's, it's a psychological thing with him. It's it's pretty weird with Lionel Messi, to, you know, that this is maybe the most famous, most scrutinised um, athlete in the world. And really, very little is kind of known about what's, what's going on in his head at any time. I mean, this whole business, I mean, you mentioned the change of attitude that he that he says took place after the um, game that they lost to Real Sociedad. Now, obviously, Luis Enrique said, oh, there, there was no change. We're doing the same thing all along. But, you know, it, it, nobody can deny that his performances since then have, have, have had a certain zest about him, which maybe wasn't always apparent last year. Now... The thing that I kind of struggle with is how is it possible for the best footballer in the world to suddenly decide, oh, hang on, I, I better start playing better. It doesn't make any sense. What was he doing all last year? What was he doing in the latter stages of the World Cup? If it was simply a, a question of attitude, um, maybe he, he should have jolted into the into the right attitude a bit earlier on. It, it sounds as though this... What, what I'm saying is the attitude explanation doesn't quite seem to seem to answer why his form has got so much better. I, I don't know either. Like I, I'm as puzzled as you about it. I, I guess one thing that he does, he does put a lot of pressure on himself. Like he, you know, we see from the books and the stuff that comes out about him that when the team loses, he goes into a sulk and he doesn't talk to anybody for a couple of days. Or, or when he plays badly, he, he takes a lot of the, the, the pressure on himself. And then when he's playing well, he, he's really happy. You see him at the moment; he's smiling. He gets on really well with Neymar and Luis Suarez. It seems, and they're playing little touches. They're getting on well together. He feels kind of one of the guys or, or that they, he, get along, he gets along really well with them and that seems to help him. Get it, we do get into into speculating about it and it is kind of fascinating to see him. I don't think Luis Enrique interacts with him too much. Like they seem to have um, their own ways of going about things and that's that. Like Luis Enrique isn't really one to put his arm around Messi's shoulder. 
and and try and help him through things if he's having a bad time or that. He, he's more of a confrontational type of character. But whatever has happened between them, they, they've agreed a, a bit of a ceasefire, uh, I think, but it's working well for Barca at the moment. Uh, meanwhile, Ronaldo, uh, his game seems to have declined somewhat. No shots on on target against Bilbao, which is catastrophic in the game of Cristiano <laughs> Ronaldo. I know you were watching the Carlo Ancelotti press conference today ahead of their Champions League game tomorrow. Was this the main topic of conversation? It's funny that... It, it is the main topic that's in everybody's mind and it hangs over the press conference, but nobody goes out and asks, you know, what's up with Ronaldo? How come he's, he's playing like a drain at the moment? How come he's he's playing so badly? That that question never really gets asked at the press conferences because people, it's just uh, kind of, you just wouldn't say that to, to Ancelotti. Or it wouldn't be said around the club. The main thing was about Bale. There, there is a lot of talk that they're going to have to try and drop or, or change tactics and go because they have the, the BBC up front with Bale, Benzema and Cristiano. And that's not working at the moment. The three of them are not playing so well. They're, they're getting stuck in midfield. And Ancelotti's talking that they're not getting much service. None of them look in great form at the moment. And Ronaldo especially. like He was scoring a lot of goals before Christmas. But a lot of them were poachers' efforts. They were first-time shots from close to goal. He hasn't scored a free kick in, in about a year or so. It's like 51 free kicks for Madrid that he hasn't scored in. He doesn't score from outside of the box either. You know, he, he doesn't seem to have that explosive physical power that he had before because of the injuries or whatever. He's a, he's now a penalty box finisher. He needs to get the service. And if there's he, if he's wedding up top, if Bale is wedding up top and Benzema's wedding up top as well, then Madrid are just a broken team and it's not going well for him. Well, I remember um, thinking when he got sent off uh, a few weeks back against, I think it was Cordoba, mm. he, um, you know, it, it was... It was kind of a stupid thing that he got sent off for this this kind of posturing confrontation with a with an opponent, and it looked as though he he'd lost his mind a little bit on the field, and he looked almost a bit embarrassed as he came off. But I thought to myself at that time, maybe this isn't the worst thing to have happened to him at this point because he actually looks as though he could need uh, he, he that, as though he could do with a a break. I mean, what, what, whatever we're saying about it's interesting to hear you say that nobody would even allude to the fact that he's not really playing very well. Yeah, I feel sorry for Bale there. It seems like Bale is the one who then has, it takes the stick, yeah. even though it's Ronaldo who's also underperforming. I think Bale, though, has to probably score about 200 more goals for Madrid before before he can kind of get into that category. But, um, you know, when you look at what he's, what he's been doing has been so extraordinary uh, at such a high level for such a long time, there's, he obviously must have paid a price for that physically in terms of wear and tear. Is, is it becoming apparent that that might be uh, the situation this season? And if so, what, how do you rate his chances of actually getting back to something like his old form uh, before the end of the season? Well, if you go with Diego Torres, who writes for El País, and a lot of Madrid fans don't really like him or don't agree with what he says, but he's got an inside track into to what's going on at the dressing room. He's been writing that his knee problems that, that hampered him through the end of last season and he just got back in time for the Champions League final then. He, he was at nothing really at, at the World Cup. And Diego Torres reckons that the knee problem has not gone away. He's trying to manage it, but he's playing in pain. And, and that's what's causing him the trouble. That's did, why he didn't he score, though. He, I mean, he did score. The only problem with that theory is that he scored about 30 goals between August and December. Yeah, and a lot of those goals were, as I was saying, they're close-range finishes from near in. They're, they're headers, they're, they're penalties. He, he's excellent at doing that, and he's putting himself through the strain of doing it but he doesn't go on the galloping 60-yard runs. He, he hasn't scored the free kicks. He, he doesn't take. He doesn't score as many from outside the box. He himself said that he, after the Atletico game, when they got knocked out of the Copa del Rey in January, he, he came out into the to defend himself a bit in the, the mix zone and said that he was playing through pain. He was able to manage it, that it wasn't a serious problem. And Shaladi always says that he's fine, that he's, no, he's got no physical problems. But his game has definitely changed in the last 12 months. He's a different type of player than he was. 
Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say also that the Ram, a lot of Real Madrid fans don't like Diego Torres, who seems to me to be uh, providing some of the most interesting news out of that club uh, on a regular basis. I mean, we talked to him about his book, the, the Jose Mourinho book, which was, um, I mean, a scream. Uh, why do people dislike this man for bringing them um, a possibly over-dramatized version of the truth? Yeah, they don't like him because they don't like to, to read that, that Ronaldo's not, not doing well. Um, it goes back to the Mourinho stuff, I guess, that, that there's a lot of people who are pro-Mourinho around Madrid and they're just pro-Mourinho, right or wrong, and whatever Mourinho did was was the way to go, which brought them into to conflict with Casillas and with Sergio Ramos and other guys who are you know who have more of a history at, at Madrid than than Mourinho would have had. Diego Torres he's been around the club for a long time. Diego Torres like over a decade covering the club. He has his sources that that are excellent, and I always read his stuff. You know, you'd, you'd want to if you're covering the game, covering Madrid seriously, you'd want to read it and take it on board. Maybe some of it is slightly dramatized, as you say there, especially the book. There's there's some parts that you know he has to to piece together from, from what he's been told. But I'd always make sure to, to keep an eye on his stuff because you know a lot of what he said has come true in the end. All right, Dermot Cargan in Madrid. Thanks a million. Cheers, guys. That um, nickname, by the way, to denote the strikers, the attacking talent available to Real Madrid, is quite widely used. It wasn't just Dermot there coming up with BBC. BBC. Bale, Benzema, Cristiano. It's quite a quite a common touch. I yeah, I find it amazing that they actually use that. I mean, what is this supposed to? What I mean, SAS say, you know, Sheeran's and Suarez and Sturge frequently use uh, RAF, Russian Fowler, right? Now, the thing about those acronyms <laughs> is that you're talking about, you know, uh, crack troops, sort of the, the SAS, you know, special forces. You can see the, the thrust of that. You know, these guys, it's a couple of uh, tough guys with some extreme skills. BBC, what exactly are they trying to suggest there? The stentorian tones of Malcolm <laughs> Muggeridge on the right. You know, you've got uh, Lord Reith, uh, I suppose, heading them in. and the It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Do you have a theory about Ronaldo that he is, you know, you got, we put the question to Dermot there, but that maybe he, he is starting to feel the effects of his game. It strikes me that Ronaldo's in, in some ways not unlike Rafa Nadal. You look at Rafa Nadal and you think, from an early age, you think, this guy is killing his body here. He really is tearing every last drop of whatever he has out of himself in every shot. And as the years have progressed, his career has gone through the roof and he's completely delivered on his potential. But the only thing that's holding him back in any way is that he's injured for a lot of tournaments. Mm. And that could ultimately cost him his his place right at the top of the players that have ever played the game. Cristiano Ronaldo, another guy, a totally different type of sport, but another person who you you feel is extracting 100% out of himself in a way that Leo Messi maybe doesn't have to. No. We hear, we even there... Uh, as Dermot says, Messi strolled around that game and scored a hat-trick against Rayo Vallecano. Ronaldo doesn't really stroll and, and maybe will suffer the effects for that. No, he. I mean, he does... He, he increasingly does stroll, though. I mean, the last... I saw Ronaldo play in the World Cup, obviously, when he was terrible, but I saw him also in the Champions League final and he was unfit for that match. I mean, the, the, he, he played, but he wasn't really fit. But what struck me about him was the shape, like the, um, the size particularly of... Simon, what are these called? The lats, the lats. You're, point, you're pointing kind of underneath here, just, round chest level, just underneath towards the back. Just the, the the width of his back, you know what I mean? Like the kind of, the kind of shoulders and back as it goes. There. He's it's gigantic, you know what I mean? It's like this big sort of flare of muscle that he's developed. He's like a, he looks like a heavyweight boxer, 
walking around. He really does. You know, it's not. He's nothing like the player that he was ten years. ago. That's know, surprising. Was, I would have thought he was a bit more sl- slighted. It might be the wrong word, but I, I wouldn't have thought he was quite as no. He's wide as that. Oh no, he's he's really. Um, he's he's you can see he's a lot heavier and a lot more powerful than he was but he doesn't move around now okay i'm talking i'm talking about a game in which he wasn't really fully fit but i i saw him play years and years ago at manchester united and he was kind of a guy he would <laughs> he was just running all of that was his his game was running and now that's not it at all it's these little explosive bursts um and he's got the kind of physique that nobody can really physically get the better of him that's what he's turned himself into um you know, but I suppose every, with every kind of, he's developed hugely as a player, but he has lost something as well. Mm. You know, he's not all round the type of player that he was. He's, he's kind of honed himself into this goal scoring machine, um, losing, I think, some of the the um, all round talents that made him an exciting player to watch, which is not to say he isn't still a very exciting player to watch, but he is this different uh, kind of a hugely powerful and no longer hugely mobile um Raphael Honigstein joins us to talk about the uh, study, Raphael, that we've referenced earlier in the show. This was uh, the Evaluation Commission of the Freiburg's, of Freiburg's, Freiburg Sport Medicine, I should say. They claimed to have found proof of systemic doping in football in Germany in the late 1970s and early 1980s. What clubs were they talking about and what, what did those clubs get involved in? Well, this is a, a section of the report that was leaked before its final publication by uh, one of the members. Um, but some of the data, some of the historic documents that they found indicated that VfB Stuttgart, for one, uh, in the 70s and 80s, was using uh, anabolics. They found receipts of the medications being shipped into the um, club HQ, and they've also found evidence of Freiburg um, using that kind of medication, even though they couldn't pinpoint any individual players being treated with that. Now, the interesting thing here is that it all goes back to one uh, doctor, so Mr. Armin Klumper, who's been um, very prominent in lots of sports, uh, namely racing, uh, bike racing, which of course has a huge doping um, affinity. And he was somebody that lots of prominent players at the time in the 80s uh, was being visited. Now, uh, we should mention that this was a time when clubs didn't have their own doctors. They only had physiotherapist. So if you needed any serious treatment on a knee injury or whatever, you'd go to a doctor and he was seen as the um, Armin Klumper, the uh, preeminent um, sports doctor of the time. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he prescribed uh, prohibited substances to everybody who came to see him. But Paul Breitner, one of his patients who insisted that he didn't uh, receive any doping himself, said, let's not kid ourselves it was prevalent at the time, and we're much better off facing up to it than suggesting it never happened, which was the reaction in the 80s when somebody like Tony Schumacher, I think you might, might remember, came out with a book saying this is, this is happening uh, in the Bundesliga, and the reaction was they fired him from the national team and brushed it under the carpet. Yeah, it's probably uh, it's easy enough for Paul Breitner to say this now, though, at this remove, I would have thought. It might have been a lot, a lot more difficult when Harold Schumacher did it. As you say, in the 1980s, it was that close to when the doping had taken place that um, that was the time where maybe it took a bit of bravery to admit that something was going on. Yes, he did, and he paid for that bravery by uh, losing his position in the national team. Um, it was interesting because in the course of this uh, latest revelation, there was some old articles and 
uh, people were very much aware uh, of the rumours and uh, some of the players um, sort of privately held their hand up and said, yes, these things are going on. And one of the interesting things that Schumacher referenced and I think makes you see some of those old footage maybe in slightly different, uh, from a different perspective is he was saying that some of these um, medications and fetamins and so on made players very aggressive. They weren't quite in control. And some of those 80s horror files that, you know, we tend to laugh about on YouTube compilations might well be the result of players being on some kind of medication that disinhibited them and made them be more brutal than perhaps they wanted to be. I mean, often when, when we talk about doping in football, it is often sort of stimulants, um, you know, the amphetamines, as you described, that, that seem to be involved. But the strange thing about this one is that uh, they've, they've also mentioned, you know, anabolics being involved, which would have been, um, you know, more typically seen, I suppose, uh, well, everybody knows that they, they played a big part in uh, the Olympic sports at that time. I wonder, did Stuttgart and Freiburg... Um, ever have any success at the time that they were supposedly doping? Well, Stuttgart were just coming back from the second division and won the title in 1983, but didn't have any sustained success. They had very successful players in the national team, the first of brothers, later Jürgen Klinsmann, of course. And uh, Joachim Löw was playing, though, although he wasn't very successful. He was more successful at Freiburg. They, they were a second division team, so a little bit off the radar. Um, but I think it's it's clear from Schumacher, who spoke uh, of doping um, uh, in relationship of possibly the national team, but also uh, Bundesliga clubs that he played for, Cologne, uh, most namely, that this was not an isolated incident. And that whether it was systemic or not, players who wanted to gain an advantage or who felt perhaps that an injury wasn't quite um, healed yet or had you know a big game coming up, they used to go to certain doctors who would have access to certain certain medication who at the time might not even have been on the list yet because they might not even have been known to the authorities. Systematic, uh, systematic doping controls only came in in 1986. So uh, you can imagine what went on before that. Yeah, it, it is interesting, isn't it, that it was Schumacher, of all people, who um, kind of broke cover on that back in the 1980s because... Um, I mean, I wonder what, 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 what do you think is the significance of that? Because Schumacher's book, as far as I remember, this wasn't the only thing that, that uh, raised a few eyebrows about that book. I mean, there was, there was racist stuff in the book. Oh, you know, I mean, when I say racist stuff, I don't know if it was particularly out of keeping maybe with um, attitudes you might have seen, you know, across the general media at the time. But, you know, there were, there were a lot of nasty things about the book. And obviously, this is not a player who had a particularly – he was a bit of an antisocial kind of a guy. Yeah, that's fair to say. And um, I think he, he learned from the experience of the 82 um, Batistone incident and the reactions afterwards. And I think he became ultimately uh, a much different, more rounded person when you talk to him now. Um, he doesn't come across like the guy, the villain uh, and the awful guy that you remember seeing the, the 82 and 86 uh, World Cup uh, videos. But... I think he, he wanted to be honest. I think, obviously, you know, this was a time when footballers weren't making that much money, so the more sensational the book was, the more money he, he could make. So he perhaps had a, had a motivation to be as controversial as possible. But I think he was, he was mentioning things that weren't mentioned at the time. Uh, football, of course, didn't have the same 
relevance culturally and also didn't have the same scrutiny at the time. So a lot of things went on then. And uh, one of the things that's mentioned now, of course, in Germany, what happened was that whenever things like doping would be mentioned, people were very quick to point over the other side of the wall and say, yeah, well, we all know this is happening in the East. They do it for everything. But here in Germany, we, we don't we don't need that. We we are real sports people. We we don't dabble in these things. And that was a sort of defense that was built in and most people tended to believe it. Yeah, and I think people really did believe it. I mean, you can look back, you can see that it was it was delusional. But at the time I, I think those those kinds of convictions were sincerely held by a lot of people who, who weren't personally doing it and didn't know from their own experience actually this is happening here. But you mentioned uh, Paul Breitner there. Um, and the thing that he said, you know, we should stand by our doping past. At least that's what I've seen in translation. And he seems to be saying, you know, we need to accept this happened. Um, but he goes on to say, today we're doping free. That we can say. How can we say that? Well, of course we can't. Uh, we can't. We can't um, say that everybody is, is completely doping free. I think what he means is that in the Bundesliga, um, testing is of such a standard that uh, that is not happening. Um, of course, it's happening in all professional sports or in most professional sports. So it would be a bit of a miracle if if it doesn't weren't happening in football. Hard to say if uh, players are not getting caught because they're actually not doing anything, or because, um, as used to be the case in, in many sports, the uh, people who use doping are always one step ahead. In the, in the things they do. I mean, what what is very well described in, uh, in the latest uh, revelation about the 80s was uh, they would give these guys anabolics um, three, four months before tournament, uh, knowing that the only kind of test, and this was, you know, very rudimentary, rudimentary uh, very simple test at the time, would be in international tournaments. And, of course, that is, uh, that is a strategy that's been successfully employed in, as we know, in many sports. I... I think one thing football has done, uh, or is beginning to do at least, it's beginning to face up to an old lie that it used to paddle, certainly in West Germany, uh, that doping is not being used because it doesn't do anything for you in football. Football is so complex, it needs so many different, has so many different um, challenges for your body that uh, doping doesn't work. And that, that used to be the line that was being trotted out every single time but everybody in football when when it came to uh, this accusations and I think people are now beginning to realize just how what a ridiculous statement that is and that of course it makes sense to do certain things and Jens Lehmann uh, broke cover actually a, a year ago so saying well maybe if it comes down to healing or things like that maybe doping should be allowed I mean it's not a view that um, was being shared very widely but you know he was he was at least explaining how it is, of course, very helpful if you can help your muscle uh, heal quicker by, by using things like that or if, you, uh, if you've lost some muscle because you were out for six months to, to buck up a bit very quickly. Yeah, I have heard that view um, mentioned in other areas and other sports that maybe there's an argument that you, that you should actually be allowed to, to use those kind of substances to, 
just, just because if you're injured, all you're doing is getting back to a level playing field. But I don't know. I think dealing with injuries is part of sport, and uh, to to cheat to get back doesn't seem to me to be a very fair way of doing things. But what's been the uh, what was the impetus behind this latest inquiry? Uh, into this because it sounds really interesting. Was there where did the push come from to go back in time and look at these samples from the or look at these stories from the seventies and eighties? Well, we've seen over the last few years um, a lot of commissions being installed. People looking at these. I mean, these are mostly um, academic projects that then get some kind of backing um, by people interested to to see what's going on. Also, sometimes. Um, has happened in, in German history before when there are actual victims. You know, there are people who, who died because of doping. They or their relatives uh, are interested to, to see what, what's going on. Um, this guy, Klumper, who I mentioned now, lives in, in South Africa. He's not um, sort of being able to shed any light and unwilling to shed any light of what's going on uh, there. But it's not that long ago. Uh, it sounds like a long time ago. But these guys are still... You know, among us, um, these players still might suffer from from after effects, and and one or two uh, clubs also, you know, maybe feel that um, it's it's good to look into their past. German German clubs, by and large, have done that process uh, through a very difficult different prism, which is of course the um, Nazi past. That a lot of these clubs, where you're thinking there's no real uh, benefit for them, have started to employ academics, historians, to look back at uh, their behavior uh, during the Third, uh, Third Reich and uh, the implications and the lessons that should be learned from that. And I think this doping, of course, is, is a bit of an extension of that, a, a belated look towards uh, sort of a more troubled and darker past. And one thing you can say, perhaps, is that at least clubs are willing to do that but um, we're still at the beginning, and I think there is still a, a big section of the iceberg that's yet to come out. All right, Raphael, great to talk to you. Thanks a million. Pleasure. This Paul Breitner attitude that, oh, we, we, we must accept it happened. It, I, mean, I didn't do anything, but there was doping. I didn't do it. Let's accept and move on. It, mm. seems, it just seems like an easy get out. But I'm quite interested overall in that idea that Raphael raised there that Germany as a country has gone mad for this in recent years. Mm. They've examined and over-examined and analysed their past as a means to come to terms with it mm. or maybe as a means to sh- try to shed some of the, the nation's guilt mm. over the last hundred years. What exactly is it? Well, they do, th- they do this. I mean, um, this has been a big thing in Germany. Generally, I'm not talking here about sport. No. It's something which is, I think is kind of an ad- a, a habit of mind which has come into sport as well. Um, this idea of coming to terms with the past, which was taken on as a serious something that the, the German government decided after the Second World War, this is this really has to be done. I mean, you could maybe argue that that after the First War, First World War, that there was no real effort made to to kind of think through what had happened and try and understand what had happened. And in many ways, um, the kind of popular ideas about what had happened there, oh, we were you know betrayed, we were stabbed in the back, kind of fed into what then became a greater disaster you know, in, in the form of the Second World War. Um, after that, there was this idea of coming to terms with the past, you know, a kind of a national process, um, which took place over decades. And, and I mean, you, what you would find is even corporations, corporations who, say, had, you know, obviously every corporation that had that was in Nazi Germany, every, every kind of company of any size was doing business with the government, of course. I mean, <laughs> no, who else are you going to do business with? That's, of, so, of course, you... 
you have had some involvement, but then companies would actually sponsor studies into their own past. Okay, to what extent did, were we uh, participants in this process? You know, what, what happened? You know, purely so that everybody knows. I mean, what you do with that information at the end of it, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. It's kind of almost like that, well, you know, at least we've kind of faced up to and recognized what we did. It seems as though that attitude uh, is, is, has evidently made its way into sport. So they're looking now at the 70s and 80s. I mean, it was, as Raphael said, uh, these Germans were always the, the bad guys because it was so obvious that they were doping. Kind of everyone else could go, well, this is, you know, look at these guys, Where, without facing up to the fact that actually that was happening that was happening here as well. I mean, I do think it's interesting how easy people find it to believe in this myth of we are good and the others are bad. You mean in Germany or just in general? No, oh, no, not just in Germany. Uh, everywhere. I mean, it's it's such an easy thing for people to kind of, for people to believe. I mean, I have no doubt that people honestly believe that. You know, West Germans honestly believed, oh, those guys are, are much worse than us. You know, we don't really do that. We don't really do that at all. And... I mean, it's com- obviously completely wrong, but something so easy about believing that. Uh, and it's great if, if they, it's great that they actually make an effort to confront these things, because I don't see, I certainly don't see that uh, happening anywhere. I mean, the most recent example of this, the high profile example in Europe is the Fuentes case in Spain, and what a different attitude we saw there. Oh, there's evidence? Well, not anymore, there isn't. You know, so they, so, uh, well, if there's no evidence, then there's not really any case. Yeah, let's destroy all these blood bags and move on. That's a different approach, and that that's that's not as that's a worse approach. We've got another show out there for you today. We have Matt Williams and Jerry Thornley talking Six Nations. Also, David Goff. He's the you might have read him about him over the weekend. He's the first openly gay GA intercounty referee who wanted to wear a rainbow wristband at the weekend in the Dublin Tyrone game that he was refereeing. He wasn't allowed to wear that by the GA, and he spoke to us about the reasons that they gave him for that and his own reaction to that decision uh, pretty interesting stuff so have a listen to that if you do get the chance in the, you can do that in all the usual ways and you can also check out irishtimes.com forward slash second captains follow us on twitter at second captains thank you very much Ken thank you very much Owen. thanks a million for listening we'll chat to you again soon what is that that's the second time it's gone off they never go home they never go home they never go home those, those, those boys Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.